Uh, Psalm 133 is where we are today. I did a pivot. We were going to be looking at a different psalm, and I felt God put Psalm 133 on my heart and mind as we're going through the psalms. We just have about two weeks after today as we conclude our summer through the psalms. The series has been entitled, My Heart Cries Out. Today we're looking at The Cry for Unity. And I hope that today's sermon is really a starting place for an ongoing and larger conversation about unity, about friendship, about diversity across difference and in our community and in our city. This is an important conversation. Many of you have already been leaning into the themes of unity. Many of you are saying this is just the beginning. What does it mean to be unified in a divisive moment? We are potentially more polarized and fragmented than we have been in a generation, probably even in human history, with all of the capabilities of communicating with each other and different ideas being propagated. There's a lot of division. So what in the world does it look like for us to push for Christian unity? Because there are different versions of unity. There are different versions of justice. There are different versions of mercy. So I have entitled, or my points are going to revolve around the theme of what does it look like to press into the theme of Christian unity. So three things that I have for us today are, number one, the basis for Christian unity. Most of our time is going to be spent in point one. The last two points are more applicable and application. So the basis for Christian unity. Number two, we're going to look at the cost of Christian unity. And number three, we're going to look at the goal of Christian unity. So under point one, let's get started. The basis for Christian unity. I want us to consider what I'm calling a short list of current cultural, probably divisive issues. Just a couple of things I want to list out for us to begin wrapping our minds and hearts around. Number one, think about this issue. This is not debate. This is just kind of bringing up things that are in front of us at the moment. Vaccines. Pro or am I an anti-vaxxer? Masks have been, become a very divisive topic. Somebody said I, they like my mask today. I was wearing a flower mask, okay? Masks to wear or not to wear. Can the government tell me what to do or what not to do? Debate over race and justice and dignity marked by stances around black lives matter or blue lives matter or maybe you prefer all lives matter. Political views that range from Democrat to Republican to Libertarian to maybe socialist. Where do you land on social or cultural issues? Are you more conservative? Are you more liberal? Are you more progressive? Are you traditionalist? And when it comes to faith, do you lean into the theme of spirituality or maybe just religion? Or are you agnostic? Are you atheistic? Are you an entrepreneurial dreamer? Are you grounded in reality? What's your view on a few of these things? Public versus private school? Or climate change? Or social security? Or artificial intelligence? Or gun control? Or nuclear energy. Here's what I'd love for you to do. Find somebody around you who looks like they disagree with you. Choose something from that list and see if you can have a constructive conversation. Don't do that. I want us to have a church at the end of today, okay? (laughs) But fragmentation, division, disharmony, disunity are hallmarks of the human story, possibly more now than ever, but they are not hallmarks of God's story. He is not like us. And to know him is to know a God of incredible diversity, We serve a triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, and they are not the same, but they're exactly the same. Incredible diversity and incredible unity. And to know Him and what He has taught us is to have a foundation for unity in a moment that needs it. So Psalm 133 is going to be our starting point, and then I'm going to take you to a few different places throughout the Scriptures as we explore what this actually looks like. So verse 1 again. Let's read it. Psalm 133. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity... It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, 
which falls on the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord has commended his, or commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Strange psalm with some unique imagery. A guy named Aaron, he obviously hasn't shaved for a while. He's got a beard. He happened to be the high priest. He is the brother of Moses. He was the original high priest. He's got oil running down his beard. It seems like it's a lot of oil, maybe a little bit liberal on this day, going down onto the collar, probably dripping down onto his shirt. Most of us would not like that. And then we're talking about dew in different places. Got a mountain in the north called Hermon. Got a mountain in the south called Zion. That's what unity is supposed to look like. And you go, come on, what's Psalm 133 really talking about? Let me give you a little background. The context of Psalm 133. It's not certain, but it is possibly a major religious festival. Jews from all over the nation have come into the city of Jerusalem. There are people everywhere. You might picture something like Comic-Con without the costumes and without, or with a little bit more like falafel and hummus, right? This is kind of a a big, crazy gathering of people from all of the different 12 tribes who ordinarily would be tribal and maybe would be distinct. They understand that they serve the same God, but I prefer to stay with my people. All of these people have come into the same space, and David is the writer, and he looks out at this vast sea of people, and he goes, man, it isn't amazing that we have come together to join heart-to-heart, eye-to-eye, sit at the table with one another, enjoy a meal, and celebrate and worship the fact that our God is the one true God. He has invited us into covenant. All of this diversity, he looks out and he goes, isn't that amazing when people dwell in unity like that? Could be the context of a large gathering in the city, but it also could be much more simple. And every day, just one man's inspired assessment that unity is hard, and then when it actually happens, it's precious. Whatever the setting is, whether it's large and it's in the city or it's one man looking out at a community, what he's really saying is that there's a miraculous nature to unity because he knows how different people are. And he knows what it means to have an opinion. And he knows what it means to be distinct and to have a personality. He goes, man, when all of these different people come together, this is a miraculous thing. And he uses two images, let's go there for a moment, to describe the miracle of friendship and love across the lines of division. And the first is the imagery of precious oil running down on the beard of Aaron the high priest. In the Old Testament, a beautiful, fragrant oil was used as a means of setting something apart as sacred or for a special purpose. A prophet or a priest or a king would have been set apart and chosen by God to kind of fill that role by God himself. An anointing with oil was a sign of favor. It was a sign of blessing. And the fact, in fact, when a a leader was anointed with oil, it was often called the oil of gladness just to mark the uniqueness of that moment. This is special. This person is being set apart to lead God's people. The oil of gladness was being used. And see, David, he looks at this gift of unity amongst God's people, and he sees it as precious oil running down on the beard of the high priest. Oil, listen, this is the beauty, oil that makes people attractive and fragrant no matter how distinct and different. And of course you say, I ordinarily wouldn't be spending time with that person. He goes, unity is something that makes people beautiful and fragrant. It's like the oil running down on a beard. The second image that he uses is of the dew on the tall Mount Hermon, which is up in the rural north, versus Mount Zion, which is much shorter, and it's in the urban south. For dew to fall from Mount Hermon, way up north, potentially hundreds of miles away, down in the city near Jerusalem, it would have been an impossibility. 
And that's what he's saying. He goes, there's an impossible thing. This cannot happen. The wetness of this mountain cannot fall on this dry space. And he goes, for there to be unity like that, it's an actual impossibility for differences like this to come together in the same space and for there to be love and acceptance across lines of division. This is the imagery that he's using. Both of them are miraculous, beautiful, and fragrant. So while Psalm 133 tells us that unity is a good and precious gift from God, it doesn't tell us how it works or how it happens. And so I want to outline three cultural options that you are given on any kind of given day, any given moment. Three options that we may be tempted to lean into. We're going to look at the difference of Christian unity. Number one, I want to look at unity as uniformity. This value of sameness. This is going to play on the preference for same. It essentially says that we can get along if we all decide to think, behave, look, and act the same way. Imagine a bunch of kids on the playground. My kids started school this week. Many of yours did as well. I'm thinking about playgrounds and recess and picking up kids. We already got drama in some of our classes. Girls are mean, by the way. I got two boys. Girls come at each other. I'm having to kind of diffuse things with Penny already. She's a firecracker. She may be mean. I don't know. But these girls are kind of coming at it. And so I'm thinking about the playground, I'm thinking about recess, kids going, let's play all of these different games. Nobody can agree, and so the kids who are the most coercive, maybe the tallest, biggest personalities, they say, we're going to play this game, and they coerce everybody else to play, and so they end up playing the game of the tallest kids, the meanest kids, the bullies. Is there unity because they're doing the same thing? In no way, right? I mean, it may all look the same, they're doing the same activity, but there's no unity of mind and heart and feelings and impressions and emotions. And the reality is, we're not the same. The church is supposed to be this beautiful tapestry of difference. You don't need to be like me. I don't need to be like you. But there is something, as we're going to see in a moment, that is going to bring us together so that we can respect one another's differences and press into the gospel. Queen of Aragon writes, she says, the family of God is a diversity of people gifted to serve each other for the sake of unified maturity in the faith. Though we are one in Christ, God doesn't erase our unique gifts, abilities, personal preferences, or other distinctions like gender or age. He also doesn't erase our ethnic and cultural heritages, very important in a community like this. Any call to unity that requires partisan allegiance, discarding one's heritage, or conflating cultural and or social class norms with spiritual obligations is not a call to biblical unity, but to assimilation. It's a call to mere uniformity. My friend and professor, his name is Rick Lentz, he said the fact that the church speaks different languages, sings different kinds of music, and engages in different cultural habits tells us that the unity of the church is never intended to be uniformity. A false version of unity. Unity is uniformity. Second, let's look at unity as tolerance. This may be the one that's propagated the most. Tolerance claims a big game. It talks a big game, but to follow a path of tolerance while initially seeming gracious and kind only deepens the divides between individuals and communities. Why do you think we are more polarized than we have been in a generation? In part, there are a lot of reasons, but in part it's because we have elevated tolerance to the top. Tolerance is like grace without truth. And the irony is tolerance is thinking that it is only the special emphasis on truth. Whatever's true for you or true for you, let's kind of just coexist. 
But see, there's just a graciousness. It is a passivity that's just waiting to be aggressive. And what we have found ourselves in is in the aggressive moment because for so long we have kind of said, you do your way, I'll do my way. But we end up thinking to ourselves because we're just being tolerant, that way's not right. My way's right. My tribe's right. And now we are tribalized. The reality is tolerance has not won us anything. It's gotten us more divided. One person described tolerance as thinly veiled hatred and disdain, and I actually think they're right. Thirdly, another false version of unity, and this is the last one, unity for unity's sake. That's not the call of Christianity. Unity for unity's sake. Unity is never a goal in and of itself. What does this mean? What that means is it's very possible to be united for all of the wrong reasons. Take Nazi Germany for an example or Taliban ruled Afghanistan. They are united, but they are united around the wrong thing. They are united around false truths. They are united around lies. Biblical unity isn't about a set of localized beliefs or traditions or practices. It is the conviction that the gospel is true and that God's people, in spite of all of their differences, are united to him by faith in Jesus Christ. To quote Aragon again, she says, to pursue unity at all costs defies the nature of biblical unity, which is grounded in the affirmation and application of the truth. Unity in and of itself is not the goal. Unity with the truth of Christ is. So let me go into that for a moment. And Christian unity, which is a genuine love and respect across the aisle of difference and diversity is a unity that doesn't demand sameness. It doesn't demand uniformity. It is a whole lot more and does not settle for thin tolerance. Instead, Christian unity decides to sacrificially and generously extend restorative kindness and friendship and grace towards one another. How come? And the answer is simply because the gospel itself hinges upon the reality of unity. This is the gospel. Unity lost and unity restored. Christianity at its very core is about relationship. It's about relationships that have been fragmented, that have been divided, right? That have been uh, pushed apart and polarized. But the reality is it's not between you and me first in Christianity. It's between us and the God who made us. But it is a fracturing that has impacted all of the aspects of human community. And the glorious unity that we shared with God in the garden at the beginning was lost through the entrance of sin into our world, which is essentially a refusal to be one with the God who made us. He goes, man, I want to be one with you. And what happened is we go, I don't want to be one with you. I don't want unity anymore. I don't want you to define me anymore. I want to self-express myself. I want to be able to define who I am. This is what it meant to have a break and a fracture in unity, and it's impacted everything. And friends, there's never been a prophet, there's never been a priest or a king who's been anointed with oil running down his beard, running onto his robes. There's never been a president or a dictator who could fix the problem. And so God sent his only son into our planet. And when Jesus Christ showed up on our planet, he shocked society. He scandalized the religious establishment of his day primarily because his message of the kingdom of God was for anyone who would believe. See, the religious leaders of Jesus' day assumed that the good, the religious, the Jewish, and the outsiders, the Jewish, the chosen people, could be included and united with God if they did the right things. But Jesus showed us that anybody, Jew and Gentile, insider and outsider, tax collector, prostitute, cheats, 
liars, losers, anyone could be redeemed by faith in Jesus Christ. Not if they did the right thing, but because Jesus already did the right thing and was going to through the life that he lived that was perfect and by standing in your place and taking on the cross. Ephesians 2 says this, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. Galatians 3, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Jesus Christ. It does not distinguish or diminish the fact that we are different, that you are male, that you are female, that you have different cultural and ethnic backgrounds, but there is a strange unity in the church. Jesus is building a pan-national family of different colors and ethnicities and cultures and traditions and backgrounds and assumptions. And he's uniting us once again with himself. The cross is the bridge that ushers us back into the arms of the Father. But Jesus is the bridge for unity in our community right now. A.W. Tozer says, Has it ever occurred to you, this is a beautiful quote, Has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to one another? They are of one accord by being tuned, not to each other, but to another standard to which each must individually bow. Is your heart tuned to the gospel of Jesus Christ? Do you know him? Is he going deep? Because unity in this community is not based on the fact that we sing songs that we like or that we kind of have traditions and practices that all of us agree to. Right? That's unity as uniformity. We're not just going to tolerate each other's differences. What would it look like to go deep into one another's differences? To see them, accept them, and say, my heart has been tuned. Jesus came for me. He's the tuning fork of my life. We're not trying to do something unique and special here. We're trying to know him. And to know him is more profound and more unique, and the world needs it. But unity in the church is about the gospel. It's about Jesus. It's like precious oil pouring down on the collar of Aaron, like dew on Mount Zion. Let me take you to part two. That's the basis for Christian unity. Number two, the cost of it. There's a black pastor. He's from the Cayman Islands. He serves outside of D.C. right now. His name is Thabiti Anyabwile, and he writes this. He says, if there is to be a fuller experience of unity, the cost will include humbling ourselves beneath God's entire word, humbling ourselves to fellowship with brethren on all sides of the issue, humbling ourselves to accept history and social science that both affirms and condemns everyone involved in different ways, humbling ourselves to tell the truth without varnish, humbling ourselves long enough to listen and consider before responding, humbling ourselves to say, I was wrong, or you were right, or please forgive me, or I didn't know that and humbling ourselves to forgive. Humility. That is the cost of unity. Is it too high a cost? Time will tell. There's a lot of Christian virtues that he could pull out. Why does he single out the unique Christian virtue of humility? 
in part it is because humility is a fundamental aspect of Christian love, but maybe more than that, humility is actually the pattern of the incarnation. And I can't wait for Christmas. Right? Is it August right now, like 22nd? I feel like 2021 is flying. My kids have started singing Christmas songs because we need some happiness in these years, 2020 and 2021. I'm ready for Christmas. Incarnation is the principle, and so often we only think about it for four weeks. But this is the Christian impetus for unity. It's the Christian impetus for humility. God did not stand up and say, come towards me. He goes, man, I love you so much. I am coming towards you. I'm coming into your world. I want to know you. I want you to know me. We're going to develop this thing. This thing has been broken. We are fragmented. I'm coming to repair it. And so humility is a distinctiveness, not simply of a type of character, but it's the distinctiveness of the Savior himself. Have you stopped to think about the heart of Jesus for you? I'm coming for you. I'm coming into your world so I can heal what is broken. Philippians 2, the Apostle Paul writes, have this mind among yourselves. He's talking to Trinity. He's talking to our church. He's talking to Christians, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Let's go slowly. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. An incarnation and humility like this, it's empathy rather than empire. It is service rather than entitlement. It is humility over and above prideful self-assertion. It's seeing somebody else's world the way in which they see it. But too often, as John Perkins has said, we are side by side, but we are not together. Think about that principle. And we are side by side, sharing the same space, potentially even sharing the same table. But there's not a rich togetherness. What will it take for real unity of mind and heart to become a reality in our community? Some of you are familiar with John Perkins. He lived in Mississippi. He was a civil rights activist. He's an amazing man. I believe in his late 80s, maybe 90s now. But he is an incredible leader, and he's written a lot of books. And one of the things he talks about is providing an example in his own life of what it looked like for somebody to be side by side and together. Here's what he writes. He says, a year after schools in Mendenhall, Mississippi became fully integrated, it became time to vote for the high school's homecoming queen. The school had about 400 black students and only 300 white students. Not surprisingly, a black girl won the title because of the majority of black students. The next day, though, the principal expelled the girl who had won, claiming she had once stolen from a white lady she had worked for years ago and was unfit for the title. However, the following day, all the black students stood up and walked out of the school in protest, along with a good number of the white students. The white teachers and principal may not have realized it, but a year of attending school together, playing basketball together, and learning to live and study with one another had changed those students' hearts. Integration may come with a cost, but when it leads to reconciliation, it is worth it. Here's the principle I want to pull out from that story, and I think our story, it's this. For there to be real unity in a community like this church, the pain of our stories has to be both shared and repaired for there to be real unity, or it's cheap. We've got to humbly learn to be side by side 
and together in the process of repentance and repair. Repentance and repair. Somebody said Christian unity doesn't sweep evil under the rug, doesn't stiff-arm critique or dismiss conflict in order to maintain a kumbaya circle while the vulnerable suffer in silence. It's important for us to keep in mind the biblical vision especially when we hear hollow unity calls, hollow unity calls that fail to also call us to repent of damage done to others. Listen, the gospel gives us the resources for that because isn't the gospel all about repair? Isn't it all about healing? Isn't it all about crossing lines of difference? Isn't it all about Jesus and what he's done to heal your life so that we can look at one another and say, man, I'm going to move into your life. I'm going to listen. I'm going to humble myself. Those who have the power within a community need to stop and listen, and look, because a call to unity in a church of this size is hollow unless there are repairs being made, unless there are I'm sorry's being offered, and unless there's grace and mercy, unless you go, man, I have stereotyped you. I don't know anything about your life. I don't know anything about your culture. I don't know anything about your family. I have assumed you are like this. Can you tell me more? I'm so sorry. And that's the beauty of being different. That's the strength of being diverse. But for there to be movement forward, we have to stop and allow repair to, be hap- to happen. And I think with, with, as Christians, all of those resources are here for us. Let me take you to the last part, the goal of unity. The goal of unity. In John 17, last place I'll take you, Jesus is praying for the unity of the church, but he also spells out the goal for that unity when he says this, verses 22 and 23. He says, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one, even as we are one. He's talking about the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that, purpose, so that the world may know that you have sent me and love them even as you love me. And what an incredible opportunity the church has to show the world a distinct form of unity that looks at a group like this and goes, you're different, you're different, you have a different life, you have a different ethnicity, you have a different cultural heritage. Why do you live in love with such distinctiveness? Why have you humbled yourself to listen and to learn? Why is there incarnation moving towards one another happening in your community? And we can kind of throw up our hands and go, it's not about us. It's about Jesus who's at the center of our story, man. The world, Jesus prays in his longest prayer for the church, John 17. Go back and read it. It is the longest prayer that Jesus prays. Throughout it, he's praying for unity within the church so that the world will see because the world is divided. He goes, all of these people, man, they should be divided. They shouldn't like each other. They shouldn't be in one another's homes. They should never break bread, but they love one another. What's that? It's the gospel. It's the good news of Christianity. And you know why there's so much bickering in the church often? And praise God, there has not been a lot in our church, but it's just part of who we are. We like to bicker, right? This is what it means to be the church. We nitpick at each other, but a friend of mine who's much wiser said, bickering happens when people are not on the front lines. He used the example of MASH. Remember that old TV show? I didn't really watch it. He had to explain it to me. He goes, they're always picking on each other. They're always annoying one another. He goes, because they're not in the front line of battle. 
Those who are on the front lines don't have time to bicker. And this is what it means for us to be the church. Each of you have been given a ministry task. And guess what it's called? Jesus explains it. So does the Apostle Paul. It's the ministry of reconciliation. It's the ministry of unity. It's the ministry of going towards other people and going, I've been united to Jesus, man. I would love for you to know him. I'd love for you to know me. Come and be a part of this thing called the family of God. That is your ministry, a ministry of unity across difference. We bicker with one another when we're not on the front lines. But when you step into that space, as Jesus starts to change your life and your heart, and you accept that call, then profound things can happen. Scott Sauls, and I'll conclude with this, he says, The world does not thirst for a religious imitation of itself, nor does it thirst for an us-against-them moral turf war with its zealous religious neighbors. The world thirsts for a different kind of neighbor, not the kind who deny their fellow man, take up their comforts, and follow their dreams, but the kind who deny themselves, take up their crosses, and follow Jesus in his mission of loving a weary world to life. Wow. We can do it together. We can do it together. It's hard work. It's hard work, but it's precious. Who in your life do you need to reach out to? What does unity look like in your community? What could it look like for you to incarnate and not wait for somebody to come to you today? What would it look like for you to pursue difference in the power of the gospel? It's like precious oil. All right, it's dew and it's refreshing. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the unity of your word that we can start in a psalm and we can end in a gospel or a letter from Paul. And we'll get to the same place. An emphasis on your goodness, your grace, your mercy, your love that allows us to cross the aisle because that's what you did. That's who you are. If we don't understand the fragmentation of our sin, the way in which we want what we want, I like what I like, and the way in which we use difference to set ourselves apart, to be differentiated from other people so that I have an identity... That's what it means to be human apart from Christ, that I find something else and I have to make somebody else feel like an outsider so I can feel like somebody. But not in the gospel, not in Christianity. The basis for Christian unity is Jesus. So tune our hearts to him, not to a preference for music, not to a style of community, not to a way in which we worship, but to him. I'm so thankful for the diversity in this room. Would you build us into a family that we might be side by side and together? We're still a young church separated by so many months of COVID. We pray for more side by side and together in the mission of God to love a weary and broken world to life. Help us, we pray, and help us help one another. In Jesus' name, amen.